0: I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 in particular. If you have been with us over these last several months, you would know that we are making our way through Peter's letter to a group of struggling and suffering, impressed, crushed, persecuted Christians across a region of the Greek and Roman world, places like Cappadocia and Bithynia. Asia, Pontus, places like this. And he's writing these struggling Christians to tell them of this living hope that they possess in Jesus. He writes them to encourage them to endure suffering. He writes to remind them that part of this living hope they have in Jesus means that they take up a different way of living than those all around them today, Peter picks up that message. Oh, there is eight verses that, is, that are in your worship guide, and I'm going to read all eight. But for tonight, we will concentrate on the first six and pick up the latter two next week. So if you'll listen to me closely and carefully to this God's word, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time That is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in these moments, we confess that we are needy people. We need to hear your word, Lord, more than we need food to eat. Lord, we need to drink drink deeply of the fountain of your wisdom and grace, more than we need drink to drink. Lord, we are here this afternoon in need of true food and true drink, which your word teaches us is you, Lord Jesus. So Lord, in your kindness and your mercy, we ask that you would use these words, however difficult, and the words that I've prepared. Lord, and would you use these words to great effect in our hearts and souls and in the life of our church, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Y'all, so one thing about being a pastor is that you're forced, and I say forced in a good way, you're forced to pay attention to the world. You kind of have to be observing the world. You have to be noticing things that are happening in your daily life because you need some things to be adding to sermons constantly, you know? And I'm here to tell you, on the basis of 16 years of doing this kind of work, that almost everything you need to know about life and godliness is put on display most clearly at a six-year-old baseball game. I'm going to give you one such example, okay? So my team is the Angels, and on a, <laughs> I knew Reagan would like that. We're the Angels because I'm a pastor, you know. Uh, my team is the Angels, and uh, on a Saturday, the Angels got beat by the Braves. Okay, the pesky Braves beat the Angels, and they beat us eighteen to four. I know. They beat us eighteen to four. We casually, flippantly get out on the baseball field. We watch balls roll between our legs. We never even put up a fight and the Braves destroyed us. And that wasn't okay with me. I'm the coach. Okay. I should say that. I'm the coach. It wasn't okay with me. It wasn't okay with me for a couple of reasons. Number one, I made my kids and their families a promise. And here was the promise. There were two promises. First one was, we might not always be the strongest. We might not always be the fastest, but I can promise you, Coach Busby's team will be the toughest. And we didn't show it that day. Secondly, I promised those kids and their families that come what may, I can't predict everything, but when the lights come on, Coach Busby's boys will be ready to play. And that was not true that day. Okay. And I took these boys out to the outfield to try to help them understand the magnitude of what has just happened. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And um, I'm noticing that this one in particular is not really catching it. And he's looking at me with a confused look, a particular kind of six-year-old boy confusion look, okay? They wear it on their face almost always, okay? But he's got this particularly confused look on his face. And this young boy, um, I did not get permission to share this story, so we're going to call him Steve, okay? I know you don't know many six-year-olds named Steve, but that's what I came up with at the four o'clock service. Steve raises his hand. And I said, right, I'll answer every question in a minute. And I keep talking. And then he raised his hand again and he says, and I'm, I promise you, he says this. He said, wait a second. Was that the game? <laughs> Little Steve was walking around flippantly, casually, unaware. Not grasping the full magnitude of the situation because he did not understand the battle in which he was engaged. And of course, this is absolutely 100% no big deal in six year old baseball. But according to the Apostle Peter, it is an enormous deal in the Christian life. The Apostle Peter is telling us in this text that it's not just possible but it's actually maybe even so far as likely that we could float around casually, flippantly, going with the flow of what is considered to be normal in our world and never actually engage and wake up to a battle that is happening around us. In this passage that I just read for you, there is one imperative The Apostle Peter yells through the pages, arm yourselves. There's a battle. Arm yourselves. And as he unfolds this command to arm ourselves, he's going to really say three particular things. And I'm going to tell you what these three things are before we begin. First of all, Peter is going to say that obedience to Jesus is painful. Therefore, be ready. The second thing Peter is going to say is, and I'll explain what I mean by this. Peter is going to say, the time has changed. Move on. And I'll explain what he means by that. And then thirdly, the Apostle Peter is going to say that you will be misunderstood. Now, this will not be your problem, but you will be misunderstood. So my goal here in these moments we have together is to try to unfold what Peter means when he says these three things. And then at the end, I want to take a moment and just aim these things at your heart and really hold out to you the hope of Jesus as clear as I possibly can. So let's begin with this first thing. Obedience is painful, so be ready. Look with me in verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What well, Peter's saying when he says arm yourself is to be prepared, be ready. Okay, You could say things like arm yourself, prepare yourself, intend to, plan on. plan on, intend to. Go ahead and accept the reality that suffering is coming. What Peter is trying to say here is that Christ suffered. And if Christ suffered, then Peter's hearers will suffer. I don't know if you've ever considered the fact that every single thing that has happened will happen to Jesus, has happened and will happen to you as his follower. Christ suffered, and he suffered in his flesh. He suffered in his body. Therefore, you and I, in our path of obedience to him, will suffer also painfully, perhaps even in our bodies. Look what Peter says. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What he means is when we take up the call to follow Christ in costly ways then we're at the same time giving up patterns of sin. Our loyalties have now shifted. And what Peter wants his hearers to know is that this will be very hard. It'll be painful. It does make me wonder if I can just interject a pastoral question. I wonder if a moment has come in your life when faithfulness, loyalty to Jesus, taking up this call to be holy as he is holy, taking up the call to respond in his way, I wonder if that's ever been painful for you. And if it has, I think Peter would want you to know that you are not alone. I think Peter would want you to know that you're not doing anything wrong. It's not like you got some technique wrong and suddenly your following of Jesus is more painful than you thought it was supposed to be. I think what Peter is saying is to arm yourself, be prepared, plan on it. It will happen like this. And he wants his hearers to be ready. Peter is saying obedience is painful. Be ready. Now, here's the second thing Peter says. He says that the time has changed, so it's time to move on. If you can look with me again at verse 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter says so. For the rest of the time, live no longer according to human passions, but according to the will of God. What Peter's trying to say is there was a time where you lived according to what he calls human passions. This is a catch-all term for unchecked selfish cravings and desires. There was a time where you did that. You did that automatically. You didn't think twice about it. You went with the flow. You weren't awake to reality. You just did it. You floated around and you just lived that way. And he's saying that that time of living that way is now gone, it's changed, and it's time to move on to living according to the will of God. Human passions, the selfish tendencies you have versus the will of God, which will bring you life and joy and peace. Selfish passions, which we're all tempted to pick up and just immediately live versus the will of God, which will help us feel alive and free. These are the kind of moments that make me see that the Bible and the scriptures and that the Christian life actually simplifies your life. Now, that does not mean it makes it easy, but could it really be that simple? Could it really be that our life in Christ is as simple as walking away from one thing and walking toward another thing? Not that that's easy, but in the convoluted confusion that you and I experience, Peter lays out a simple choice. Look at what he goes on to say. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And he elaborates here in verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's elaborating. He's saying there was a time where he lived this way and that time is past. He's about to start explaining to you what that past way looked like. And before I explain each of these vivid words, it's really important that you know that the list of things that we read that I'm about to explain to you aren't things that would have immediately struck these hearers as evil or wrong. Instead, they would have simply just been the way that people do. They were doing what the Romans did. There was a way of living and moving and existing that was so natural. The things that I'm about to explain to you were things they would have considered to have simply been normal. Listen to what they are. The first one, sensuality. Some of your translations might say licentiousness. But the idea of sensuality or licentiousness, this has to do with unchecked impulses, either in the New Testament sense, towards something lustful or sexual, or towards something brutal or violent. It's an interesting juxtaposition You see, another word could be brutality. And I think what Peter is trying to do is just trying to get at the kind of things that went on in the world in which they lived. Unchecked sinful impulses, either for lustful things or for violent things. For example, we have to remember that this is the world where there were these games, these sporting events. Where people would go inside stadiums and a contest would happen except a human person made in the image of God would be killed for sport and it would be lauded and laughed at and cheered on there were little trading cards about these athletes that kids traded back and forth to one another people would bet on these games no kidding commentators would sit outside of stadiums and give their opinions about who would win the game they would trade players they would draft players It was brutal and it was violent and it was an unchecked sinful impulse to just engage all that stuff because that's what people did. This word passions, I've already mentioned it. It's selfish cravings. Now, sometimes when you hear the word passions in a sinful sense, you again might think of something sexual or lustful. But it is actually a word that's a little broader than that. Selfish cravings. For example, do you ever just have this selfish craving in a moment of frustration to just harshly react and say something mean or angry at somebody? It's because in that moment, if you'll speak in that way, that'll make you feel better, won't it? or the idea of selfish cravings. This is one that I mentioned a few weeks ago. But it's, it's, it's like laying there in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning and you hear that the baby starts crying. And you know that if you lay there and pretend you're asleep and not move, that she'll think you're asleep and didn't hear the baby. And then she'll get up and get the baby and you can keep laying there in the bed. I've heard about this. I've been told that this happens sometimes. What I'm trying to get you to see is that unchecked selfish cravings sometimes feel very, very normal to us. Peter says the time of taking up those things is past. What about this next word? It says sensuality, passions, drunkenness. Now, this might be hard for you to imagine, but in the Greek and Roman world, in the cities, there were these things called tavernas or taverns and people trying to escape the normal things of their life would drink and they would drink too much. They would drink to excess in order to forget about their lives for a while and lower their inhibitions. And Peter's saying the days of just going in and doing that are past. Are, are past. It goes on to say orgies, drinking parties. Again, in the New Testament sense, this isn't necessarily something overtly sexual, though it could be. But it's the idea of of wild partying. Some translations will say revelry, carousing, raunchy parties. You see, Peter's hearers would go with the flow and just do this kind of thing because that's just sort of what you did. And Peter's saying the days of pursuing those things are over. Lawless idolatry. You might say, Joel, but we don't worship other things. Well, I want to remind you the definition that the Protestant reformers have given us, that an idol is anything that your heart craves, loves, fears, hopes in, clings to, in place of craving, wanting, desiring, clinging to, hoping, and fearing God and God alone. John Calvin said that the human heart is actually an idol factory, always making up new things to chase and worship. Peter's hearers were tempted nine to five all week long to worship other things. And Peter's saying the time of doing that is past This raises another, to me, somewhat chilling question. Could there be anything like this in our world, in your world, in your life that you are just accepting, going with the flow, and assuming is normal that could be endangering your soul? If I were a Grace Fellowship home group leader, that's probably what I would discuss this week. Peter's saying, Leave them behind. But he wants us to know this third thing, that if we leave those things behind, we will be misunderstood. Now, this will not be our problem, but we will be misunderstood. Let's look at what he says. Verse four, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. In other words, when we take up the call to leave things behind in order to cling to the hope we have in Jesus, it will surprise and confuse They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. It will move from being surprised and confused to outright mistreatment. But Peter wants us to know that in those moments, it will not be our problem. It won't be our concern. We don't have to worry about that because God will be the one who judges. Look at verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit, the way that God does. Now, these are confusing words. Some of the most confusing words in the New Testament, but suffice it to say, Peter is wanting you and I to know that God will be the judge who judged the living and the dead. Every single wrong will be righted. Every single bit of vindication for holiness will be yours. That God will deal with those people who treat you that way. It will be His responsibility, not yours. Obedience is painful, the times have changed, and you'll be misunderstood. Arm yourself. Prepare yourself. Plan on this. Be ready for this. Now I don't know how you respond to that. I don't know how you take that news. There's a sea of things that went on in my own heart and soul as I work my way through these things this week. I'll share a few of those with you. For one, it's just sobering. It's a sobering reality. Secondly, it brings conviction to my heart because I think of the ways that I have just casually gone along with so many things without thinking. It brings the weight of shame and guilt to me because I can see the painful things that I have wrought by my own doing because of the way that I've picked up some of these very attitudes that Peter mentions here. And it makes me long. That's the last thing. It makes me long for a day. It makes me long for a day where I'm not just driven by sinful fleshly appetites. It makes me long for a day in which I'm not constantly wounding other people with my sinful appetites. It makes me long for a day where I don't feel suffocated and strangled by sin anymore. And what I want you to know is that the apostle Peter The whole point of this letter is to say that day where you long for those things I just told you is today. And it's now because the Lord Jesus has gone to the cross to forgive you of sin. He's gone to the cross and he's put his spirit in you to give you a new way of being and living and doing and existing. A new way can be yours. To aim this at your heart, I want to just say a couple of things to you. First of all, this might be a weird thing to hear a pastor say, but I want you to remember that sin is actually not that great. It's actually not that great. Psalm 32 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. To live in these things is extremely painful. And Peter wants us to know that in Jesus, there's a better way. We have a living hope. I want you to know that sin is not that great. I want you to know that more can be redeemed and repaired and healed in your soul than you even know. I promise. That same text that says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. It goes on to say, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And see, to walk away from these things in order to take hold of the living hope you have in Jesus. See, the Bible calls that walk from here to there, which is a walk we do every single moment of our lives. The Bible calls that repentance. And the good things that await you and I on the other side of repentance are unspeakable. The scriptures teach us if we'll take that walk from here to there, Regardless of the pain, regardless of the mistreatment and the misunderstanding, Scripture simply teaches that we won't regret the trip ever. Let's pray, Lord. These things are easier talked about from a pulpit than they are lived in the realities of our life. So we ask for your help. Would you make us a people who crave better things? Lord, would you make us a people alert and awake to the reality of the battle we're in? Would we be armed? Lord, would we be a people who take a walk toward a living hope instead of the soul-destroying reality as a sin? Will you help us do these things for the sake of your name and your glory. Amen.